Amen. Good morning, church. So many good-looking people this morning. These guys are just, you just dial up real well. Happy Father's Day. Uh, as, as Justin alluded, you know, it's, it's interesting. There's a mixed bag of emotions that come with Father's Day. Some people had fantastic fathers that were a really good example, that were really present. And then that we also acknowledge that there are those that didn't have a father around. And that can be actually a time where there's a lot of frustration and there can be a lot of angst and, and bitterness attached to that. But what I want to say to you is that regardless of what kind of father you have, the Bible is so clear that we have a heavenly father who loves us, cares for us, watches out for us, died for us. And that is the father that we look towards. That's the one, the ultimate father that we love. And we have that. Anyone has that who would call upon the name of Jesus. So I want to say that before we get going. As I was preparing for this particular sermon, I started thinking about my kids, and uh, I've got three boys. They're all teenagers. Um, it's crazy. One about to not be a teenager. I'm like, oh, that means I'm old. So I keep shaving the gray down so it doesn't look like I feel that old. But we would have these crazy conversations. Our kids ask a ton of questions growing up. Maybe you've gone through that phase or maybe you're in that phase right now where kids just ask tons of questions. And so it got so funny, the questions that they would ask that my wife actually got a book and started writing down the things that they would ask so we could make fun of them later when they knew what they were doing. And so she has this book. I'm like, honey, bring out the book. And she brought out the book and said, read me some of the questions that one of our kids, I won't tell you who it is, but his name starts with an H. So that's, that's who it is. So uh, things like, are rocket boots real? I'm still praying for those to be real. I want those to be real so badly. Um, what's stronger, your teeth or your fist? I'm assuming there was some kind of fight that was about to happen and he was weighing options. I don't know. Um, what is a thermal illuminator? I'm like, wow, that's, a, that's an intense question. I, I, I don't know if I know. But they would also ask hard questions like, where did God come from? Why is there bad in the world? Did God create sin? Needless to say, we had a lot of conversations around the dinner table at our house. Some were hilarious and fun, and some were more pointed that we actually got to land in the gospel and where that was. And so, but what I love is that kids ask questions. And you ever thought, why do kids ask so many questions? Well, the reality is they understand that they don't understand very much. And so because they don't understand very much, they want to know and, and understand, like, what does it mean to exist in this world? How does this world function? How does this world work? And then how do I respond within the world that I live in so I can live appropriately that's going to have the best benefit for my life? That's really why they ask those questions. And so who do they go and they turn to? They go to someone that they, they trust someone that they love, someone that's not going to deceive them, and they, they go, this person cares for me, so they're going to bring me truth. But have you noticed, the older we get, it seems like the less questions that we ask. You ever, you ever notice that? Like, seems like the older you get, you, you start asking less questions. And you might ask, well, why is that? Why, why as we get older do we ask fewer questions? Because to ask a question, it puts you in a different posture and position, doesn't it? You have to admit that you don't know something. You have to admit that there is a lack 
of your intelligence, in your wisdom, in your experience. And what you have to do is when you ask somebody, you're saying, you're smarter than me. You're wiser than me. You know more than I know. And there's, a, there's this sense where you kind of have to take a seat of humility when you ask somebody a question. And we find at times that pride can be the very thing that stops us from knowing and understanding truth. Now, today we're going to talk about that, this very idea of asking questions and why we do and why we don't. We've been in our Conversations with Jesus series. We've been kind of chugging along down the way, and um, we're in a... An, we're in one section this week, which is kind of crazy. We're going to hit the most famous, popular, well-known Bible verse in the New Testament. Any guesses? You are all so smart, all of you. Yes, John 3.16, and we find that this verse that we know that's held up at football games all over the place is that it's about this conversation. It's linked and connected to the conversation that we're in today. And so what I would love for you to do, if you brought a Bible, please turn with me to John 3. We're going to be in verses 1 through 21. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one in the back. There's some in the seats above you. You can have that. Keep that. Take that. You can use your device or just follow along if you want. All right. Starting in verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the, Jew, of, of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things, you would not believe. How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so much the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the lights and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's go ahead and pray and jump into this section. 
Jesus, I thank you for this powerful conversation that you had with Nicodemus, but also understanding that's a conversation that you're having with us today where we are. I ask that you would open our eyes and reveal in our hearts the areas where we might need to lay some things down, where we are seeking our joy, our satisfaction, our fulfillment, and our peace in a different area, that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, that you would melt our hearts of stone, that we would turn towards you as the one true God and believe that salvation only comes from you. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would work through me this morning as I speak, that you would not let me be a distraction to the truth of your word, but I would help point people towards you in all things. Move amongst us. I pray this in your name. Amen. So we're introduced to this person named Nicodemus, and it tells us a couple of things right off the bat. It says that he was a Pharisee and that he was a ruler of the Jews. Now, we talked a little bit last week about what a Pharisee is, but it was the religious leaders of that day, of that age, that would make sure that people understood the law of God, that they would apply it to their lives and the people that were of the Jewish community. But it says that he's different than the guy we talked about last week. He was even more important than Jairus. Like he was more important than he was. He was a part of the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin was interesting because it was made up of 70 like high-profile elite religious rulers of that day and of that age. And they also had a high priest that was there as well. And so you had 71 individuals that would meet together, and they were kind of like the religious court of that day. And so their job was to go ahead and take God's word and they would rule on different things that were happening and who was doing what, if it was sin, if it wasn't sin, if God approved of something, if he didn't. And they actually had this place that was connected to the temple. So their room that they had was on the outer wall of the temple, uh, still a part of the main temple, and was connected to the, uh, the, the court of the priest. That's where that was at. And it has a fantastic name. I was looking it up and I'm like, that's, that's a great name. Like, that's a great name for a movie. That's what I would call it. It's the Chamber of Hewn Stone. I'm like, that just embodies a great name. And so they had this corridor where they would meet, and that's what they would do. And so they could actually rule, and they could judge anyone there, and they could, and they could give punishments, all except for one punishment, which was death. The only ones that could do that would be the Romans since they occupied that area. They were the oppressors of the Jewish people during that time. And so for there to be a death sentence given, it would have to go through the Romans and the Romans would make that decision. That'll come up a little bit later. And so what we see is that as, as this is happening, Nicodemus shows up. He's this, he's this teacher. He's this guy who shows up and he comes to talk with Jesus. But here's what I love. What makes a great story, which I feel like we're lacking in great stories, we're lacking in great writing, we're lacking in great ability to to show us things, whether that's books or movies, I don't think we're doing a good job of that right now, but what makes a good story is a good character arc, that you see a character start in one position, and as they go through different trials or things in their life, it changes how they think, it changes how they interact with the world, and they start to act and do different things. And that's something that makes a good story. Now, we are going to start sharing more testimonies here at this church because that's what we want to see. We want to see the arc of people's lives as they have an actual encounter with the God of the universe, Jesus Christ, that it doesn't just like, oh, nice to meet you, Jesus, and they have a good day. No, it changes you. 
It transforms you that we worship a living act of God who when you come into contact with him, when you have a conversation with him, you will live differently. You won't think the same way. You won't act the same way. You won't live the same way. You will throw things away that you never thought you'd get rid of. You will make decisions based upon that relationship with Jesus. And we want to share that. We don't worship a dead God who doesn't change people. We worship an act of God that changes lives. And that's what we're going to see with Nicodemus by the end of this conversation today. So it says that he comes at night, and there's a lot that's wrapped up in that, so I'm going to try to unpack it a little bit. Uh, he comes at night, and there's a, there's a few different reasons that people have led to that this is why he came at night. One is both of them were super busy people. And to have the ability to come and have a real conversation, they wouldn't be able to do it during the day, so they would have gone at night. It could have been that uh, the Sanhedrin decided, we need to know more about this, Jesus, so you're going to be a representation of, of the Sanhedrin, and you're going to go and you're going to talk to Jesus so we can understand more of who this guy is that everyone's flocking to. But it's also that it was dangerous. Because what we find is that they didn't like a lot of the things that Jesus was saying. And they were opposing the things that Jesus was saying. And so what we see happening is like to go and affiliate yourself with Jesus could be very dangerous. So under the cover of night, he could go and do that. Now, I think that it's maybe a combination of all of those things. I don't know if it's just one thing. But what I do believe is this. As I've studied Nicodemus, as I've studied his life, and I've seen what's going on, this man had questions. This man wanted to know something that he didn't understand, that he was hearing things and he was seeing things and they weren't jiving with what he thought he knew and understood. And so he wanted to go and hear it from the horse's mouth and go, you tell me what's going on because I know a lot of stuff, but you're saying things that I don't get. So let's have a conversation. And Just so you understand, like, again, the position and the authority of Nicodemus, he was probably one of the most powerful men in the Jewish system in that day and age, second only to one. Who would the person be the top dog? High priest, absolutely. So he would be like number two to the high priest. It says that he was the teacher of the Jews, meaning that he was the teacher. If you are going to learn about God, you're going to this guy. This is the guy that didn't ask questions. This is the guy that gave answers. This is the guy that had devoted his entire life to understanding, memorizing, practicing out everything that God's word would say. That's who he was. And so yet we see that he comes before Jesus and he addresses him in a very interesting way. He addresses him with the term rabbi. If you don't know what that means, it means teacher. But here's the thing that's really interesting about this teacher, Nicodemus, going to Jesus That term was only reserved for those that had formal education in that system. So he's acknowledging him. He's showing respect and honor to him. And and he's going to give this statement. But what he's really doing, he's like saying a bunch of stuff, but he's really asking a question. And so, and so Nicodemus is going to talk, oh, you're doing all these things, and we know that you must be from God because no one can do it unless God is with him to do all these crazy things that you're doing. The way that you teach is so much different. It's not like you're teaching, but you're, like, you're telling authority that this is what God says as if you're God saying it. You're doing these miracles and you're healing people, and, and you're doing it for the glory of God, not the glory of self. So we know that something's happening. See, 
The way that Jesus taught, the way that Jesus lived, and the things that Jesus did was butting up against his worldview and what he thought and understood what it meant to have a relationship with God. And so he's in this moment, he's like, something's not right. We know that you are most likely a prophet of some level. You're doing things that you shouldn't be. You're meeting prophecies that were proclaimed about who you should be. And I think there's this moment where he's like, someone in this conversation is right, and someone in this conversation is wrong. And he's like, I got to figure out who's who in this conversation if we're going to continue in this relationship. And that's where we find Nicodemus. And I love what Jesus does is that he, he hears the statement and he's like, well, I already know your real question, so I'm just going to go ahead and answer your question. Because if you look at Jesus' response, it doesn't make sense to where it fits. Jesus is like, I, I ain't got time to fiddle around with like formalities. We're just going to get to the deep part of it and start talking about what's really going on. And he says this in verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, that term again, we've heard the term born again Christian, what that sounds like, but the translation better would be um, from above. Born from above is really what he's saying in that statement. See, this man represents the elite of the elite when it came to being religious, when it came to being righteous, when it came to being holy. He knew everything that God had said. He had memorized multiple books of, of the Torah and the Pentateuch. He, he knew it. If anyone was going to be at peace with God, if anyone was going to have a, a proper relationship with God, if anyone was going to be welcomed into the kingdom of God, it's got to be this guy. And what Jesus says in this moment is that if you want to see the kingdom of God, you've got to be born from above. So what is he inferring? that you don't have a relationship with God and you're not going to be a part of the kingdom of God. If the question that he is, he's asking, he's being answered with like, oh, you want to be born again. He's like saying like, you're not. And this is how you can. And then that then starts the conversation. So when he talks about uh, the kingdom of God, we need to understand what is he talking about? When he says kingdom of God, he's talking about eternal life, God's rule and reign over Israel and the entire world for forever. And that the Messiah, the, the Christ, the one that would come to save the world, was coming to establish his kingdom through that. So the Jews at that time thought that what God was going to save them from was the Romans. We're under this oppression. These people are holding us down. They're not allowing us to worship. They're doing horrible things. They're taxing. All these things are happening. And they believe that the, the Messiah would come, free them from Rome, and then that would allow them to be the nation of Israel that they believe that they should be. But what Jesus does is Jesus wants to engage him. Jesus wants you to engage him. Like, he wants you to ask questions. Jesus wants you to approach him and say, I don't understand this. What does this mean for my life? What does your word say about this? What does it mean to be in a relationship with you? And sometimes we'll ask God questions, and, and God loves us so much, he's going to answer the bigger question in our life. And that's where he goes with Nicodemus. He's like, Nicodemus, what you're asking is, how can I have eternal life? Am I doing what I need to do to be right with God? He is looking for approval, and he's looking for assurance is what he's looking for in his life. And as he comes with everything that he has done and his life dedicated to this thing, 
what we see is that Jesus immediately shows him that what he has is not enough to have the eternal life that he desires so much with God. And Nicodemus's response is really telling because he doesn't understand what Jesus is saying. He doesn't get it. So he's like, I got to be reborn? I got to, like, do I have to go in my mother's womb? And every, every mother's like, no, that's not the answer. We're not going to do that. But what is he really saying? That's impossible. That's what he's saying. I can't be born again. You're only, you're only born once. You can't be born again. And so often we get stuck on temporal things in the physical world instead of understanding what the real problem is. The real problem comes from our spiritual state and where we are with that. That sin has done something to us that has ruined our relationship with God. So when sin entered the world, when it came, it disconnected us from the source of life, the source of power. That's Jesus. Think of a lamp. So if you have a lamp on your desk and you turn it on and it has light and everything's great, the moment you unplug that, what happens? The light goes out. That's exactly what sin did when we were in relation with God, that he is, he is the light, he is life, he brings us everything that we need to live and sustain. When sin entered the world, we unplugged that and we have been looking for another outlet, another plug ever since then, that we've been trying to plug it into. Family, religion, Hope, money, power. We keep trying to plug it in, hoping that there will be a power source that will give us the life that we truly desire. And that's what's going on in this moment as we start to look at this. He's still thinking of all these physical things, and Jesus is like, no, no, no. Like, we need to solve this eternal life problem and this death problem that's come from sin. And if we don't do that, we will die physically and spiritually. But Jesus loves this man so much that he wants to help him understand what's happening. And so he's like, I'm talking about a different kind of birth. And there's so much more with this one. Verses 5 through 7. And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So he's going to keep pressing into that next spot. Flesh can only give birth to flesh. He's like, flesh is the problem. Like, being born again of flesh, since we've inherited the sin of God, since we're still committing sin, like, that's not going to make anything new. It's still going to perpetuate the same issue, which is separation from God and, the, and sin in our lives. He's saying you need a different kind. You can't do that. We, we, have, we will continue to live in rebellion of God if we're born the same way of whence we came. You say, no, you need to be reborn by the Spirit. And at this point, you can tell that he still doesn't get it. And so Jesus is like, okay, let me, let me help you understand how this being born of the Spirit works. And then he uses an analogy that's like super hard to understand. He's like, it's like the wind. And was like, oh gosh, like, you can't see it. You can't touch it. Like, how, do, how does that help? It's like, you, it blows this way, it blows that way. You don't know where it comes from. Now, we, I get it. Meteorologists are like, I completely understand the wind. High pressure, low pressure, and it's a front that comes in, and that's what it does. But you know what's funny? We still can't predict how it's going to work, can we? Go to Tornado Alley. There's still tornadoes, and we're still getting hit with them. Like, we don't always understand how that works. Like, that's how it is with God. He's saying this is not a physical thing that we're talking about. That this is a spiritual thing, and it's a supernatural thing, and it's something that God is doing. So you want to know how this being born of the Spirit works? It comes from God. God is the one that actually does it. 
and you're trying to attach your works of being religious and righteous and holy to it, and he's saying you're working out of the flesh, you have to work out of the spirit, and only the spirit can give birth to the spirit. That's what he's getting at when he's talking about that. And then it's interesting, so then like, Nicodemus just gives this like statement, and you can, I mean, I, I feel it. When I read it, I'm like, oh, he's like, how can these things be? It's kind of a give up statement, right? Like, you're saying all this stuff, it doesn't make sense. I'm kind of just like, I guess no one can. I, I, guess, I, guess I'm, I guess it doesn't work. But here's the thing. Even though Nicodemus might be giving up in the conversation, Jesus isn't. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. I love you too much to give up on you, and I care about you too much. And he actually has a certain expectation from Nicodemus. If you listen to the text, he's kind of like, um, you're the teacher. Not a teacher, you're the teacher. Don't you get it, man? Like, he's like, if anyone should understand what I'm saying, it should literally be you. You're the most studied man in the nation currently right now, and you should know exactly what I'm talking about. And if you don't realize that what he's doing is actually, he's He's referring to scripture in the Old Testament that he would have known. And so as he's talking about this, all you've studied the laws and the writings, and, and you, you have committed your life to this, but you still don't get it. And so where he's actually trying to get him to go is, one is the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36, in 25 through 27, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. He, would have under, he should have understood. That's where his mind should have gone. He's using words like water and spirit. Those are both in here. They're connected to the statement of what he's saying. That I am going to do something new, and I have to do something new. And so then the next, the next section in Ezekiel is actually this really famous um, section, which is the Valley of Dry Bones, where there's all these dead bones in a valley, and he gets this vision, and God then brings these dead bones back to life. It's the idea that God brings new life when his spirit dwells amongst them. It gives them new life where they were once dead, as we would say, dead in our trespasses, dead in our sin. That he's saying, I'm going to do something. And he says this at the end of uh, verse 14 and 37. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land and you shall know that I am the Lord. See, he's like, there, there has to be new life. I've already said there's going to be new life. I'm the guy that brings new life, and it comes from the Spirit and the Spirit alone. He's like, your Spirit will not bring you life. Only the Spirit of God will bring you life. Or he would have gone to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah uh, 31, verses 31 through 33 says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. 
and I will write on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That there needs to be something new that is happening. And Jesus is saying, I am that new thing that you have been looking towards and thinking about. The new covenant that we spoke of is me. I am the new covenant. I am the one that's coming to do this new thing to give you a heart. That I'm going to bring you back to life, though you don't even realize that you're dead. It's like, how can I talk about heavenly things with you, Nicodemus, if you don't even understand the earthly things that you have access to that I'm telling you already? He's like, no one can go to heaven. No one can have eternal life. No one can be a part of God's kingdom unless they are connected to the Son of Man. And that's Jesus' favorite term for himself. And so what he's going to do is going to shift to an Old Testament thing that he clearly would have understood to make a point. Now, it's a story that I shared probably about a month or so ago. It was a part of it, and you might remember it, but I'll kind of like uh, cliff note you there. If you're older, you know what cliff notes are. If you're uh, younger, you have no idea what I'm talking about, but it's how we cheated back then. And so this is what I'm going to do. <laughs> Let's call it what it is, right? It's just what it is. Um, it's the story about when Israel was freed from Egypt and they were taken out into the desert and God was providing for them and giving them, they say, free them from the Egyptians, free them from their slavery, free them from their taskmasters, allowed them to victoriously leave that God's like, I'm going to be your God, you're going to follow me. And what ends up happening is the same thing we see that we do, that the Israelites do, is they start grumbling and complaining like crazy. Well, it was better when we were slaves because we had meat. I'm like, wow, that's, that's where you go right away? At least we had meat when we were slaves? Okay. I like meat too, but I don't know if I like it that much. And, he, and so they start complaining. Then they start blaming Moses. This is your fault, Moses. And then they go a step further and start blaming God. This is all your fault, God, when God is the one who's truly freeing them and protecting them and caring for them. And so what happens is they start complaining. They're basically saying that God's sinning against them. And God's like, nope, we're not playing that game. And so then God sends in all these snakes all these poisonous snakes, and they just start biting everybody. And you know what happens to get bitten by a poisonous snake? That's right, you die. That's just kind of how that works. That's why we don't like snakes, because we don't know if they're poisonous. So they're biting these people, and then they're like, oh, Moses, what do we do? Suddenly the guy that they were blaming, like, help us. Very typical of how we respond as human beings. And so responds like, what do we do? And Moses is like, let me talk to God because he's the one who actually knows how to do this. He sent the snakes. And he's like, uh, I want you to make a bronze serpent and I want you to stick it on a pole. I want you to lift it up really high in the middle of the town. And then anyone that would then look upon this bronze serpent would be healed and they wouldn't die. And what Jesus does, which is so crazy, he relates himself to that story. He says, and the Son of Man, Jesus, will be lifted up as well. Lifted up on a pole, but also a double meaning of lifted up and exalted on high. And he's starting to say, this is who I am. This is what needs to happen. That whoever would believe in the Son of Man would be saved as well, just like the Israelites were saved before. Then Jesus goes into one of his most famous sections of Scripture in the New Testament. Why is it so famous? Because it's concise, and it's coming from the Son of God. It tells us why Jesus came. It tells us the heart for God, of God and his people and how they can ultimately be saved. It's so concise. It's so right there that you can't miss the message. 
And he's going to say that I am a better healer in comparison to the bronze serpent that I just shared with you, that you would know and that you would understand. And so verses 16 through 18 say this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And some things that we want to pick up in this and understand what he's saying is one is this, is that God loves the world. And you're like, he likes planets? That is not what he's saying. He is saying that I love the people of this world that I have made, that I have created, that are made in my image, that have worth and dignity. Hear me when I say this. In a world full of hate that wants to hate everybody, every human being God loves because they're an image bearer of God and he has touched them. So when we start to have these feelings of hate towards other people, realize that this is someone that God loves, that he cares for, that his son also came to die for. It says he gave his son out of that love. His love was so deep that he gave his son. He gave up his perfect, holy, and righteous son for his people. There was a ransom, and it was our death, our needing to pay for or the penalty of rejecting God that he became a sacrifice, that he was a substitution, that he went in our place where we deserve that punishment. He said that God loves his people, that he sent his son, that his son would become an offering, a sacrifice, and a ransom for men and women that believe in him. And if you place your hope in him, you don't have to worry about an eternal separation from God, but we'll have an eternal connection to God forever. Like, to understand that someone had to die for sin. The Old Testament is full of the sacrificial system that there has to be a penalty, that there has to be death for sin. It is no different for you and I. But to have it cover for forever and eternally had to be done through the God-man himself. Past sins, present sins, and future sins that was laid out on the cross when he hung on that cross. So even though we deserved his wrath because of our rejection and rebellion, and all I mean by that is when we say, God, your ways are wrong and my ways are right, we're calling God a liar, we're calling God a sinner, we're saying he doesn't know what's better, and we do. That's a problem. That's called sin. Even though we deserved his wrath, he's like, I didn't come to condemn. I could have, and I would have been right in doing it. But because I love you, because I sent my son, I didn't come to condemn them. I came to save the world even though they didn't understand that they needed saving in the first place, even though they didn't realize that they were so lost and so broken and so dead inside that they needed Jesus to take that place. It's like, and if you, if you don't believe, you're already condemned because you've chosen not to believe. You don't believe in the Son of God being the one that's come. And he's going to hit on the heart issue right there is that Jesus is the light of the world. What does light do? It pushes away darkness. It, you, you, when you go in a dark room, what do you want to do? You want to flip on the light so you can see what's in there. It exposes what is in the room. And Jesus came and he lived that perfect life. And it is in stark contrast to how we live. So when Jesus shows what it means to be perfect and holy, when we stand before him, we have a problem. We see the contrast, don't we? That we're not perfect, that we don't live that way, that we don't honor God in the same way that he did. And it's saying that the problem is, is that we love the darkness. You know what makes a clean room clean? Turn off the light switch. We love it. 
We love where we don't have to see those things. And we love our sin. How do I know? Because we keep doing it. If we didn't love it, we wouldn't keep doing it. If there wasn't some kind of temporary satisfaction in your heart, you wouldn't continue to do it. If every time you sinned, someone stabbed you in the kidneys, you'd be like, I'm not doing that anymore. That hurts. But instead, we get something that we think is going to make us feel good, that's going to make us feel like this is a thing that's worthwhile. But in the end, it always leads to destruction and death and pain and suffering. See, our lives were designed to be a mirror that reflected God, God the Father. It's it's interesting as you, like, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. Um, Far from it. And, and, and God had a plan through all of that. And my dad, I love my dad. He was, he was a great dad. He, was, he, he came to all my wrestling meets and sporting events. And anytime I'd do something, I mean, he worked the night shift but still show up to things that he should be sleeping through. And he was always there. And I got to see an example of what sacrifice looked like, what love looked like, even though he didn't realize he was showing me character traits of God. But I didn't have that growing up, that I didn't have that father figure that I go, Dad, what does this mean in the Bible? Dad, what does it mean to be a godly individual? But you know, our God is so good that he brought other people into my life that filled that role until my dad was saved. And a guy named Mike McKay became kind of like a spiritual father to me, kind of like Timothy and Paul. And I would go to him and he would show me those things. So if you're in a place where you're like, I don't have a good father, Simon. And every time you talk about fathers, I get really mad. But do you know that God is a God that will put fathers in your life that may not be your biological father, but are going to be a father to you and care for you? Because you have a savior named Jesus who was adopted by a guy named Joseph. Isn't that crazy? He's going to bring fathers in your life to love you, to show you what that looks like in your life. And Jesus is saying that the the people of the world have been bitten by a much more deadly snake than the Israelites did. And that poison is worse than you could ever imagine because this poison is more than just a physical death. It's also a spiritual death as well. And the poison that flows through our veins that's killing us is sin. And that sin will kill us. Jesus was raised on the cross just like the serpent was. Just like he said. And, he's, and this is what he said. And I, I, the simplicity of the gospel is what makes it so beautiful. If you look at him and believe that he died for your sins, if you believe that he is the son of God, if you have placed your faith in him, you will be saved. Who's he telling this to? The guy that's doing all the religious stuff. He's like, your way is wrong, Nicodemus. You need to look to me to be the one to save you, to be the one to heal you. The one that you've been waiting for for 400 years ago when you got the last prophecy in Malachi. Like, I'm that guy, the guy you've been waiting, praying, hoping for. You're standing in front of him right now. You can touch me. You can hold my hand. You can hug me if you want. You cannot have a relationship with me by doing a bunch of things can't have it wrapped up in your knowledge. You're not going to get to the kingdom of God by being a really smart guy because I'd be in trouble. So what happens to this guy, Nicodemus? Sometimes we get these stories and it kind of ends. You're like, so what happens? Uh, When John did the story of the rich young ruler a couple weeks ago, we don't really know 
we can speculate. We kind of like try to extrapolate things out of that. We just don't know. It's like, oh, I want to know what happens with this conversation. And sometimes we do get to know. And what I love is that God is good enough, and the writer, John, is so good to show us that we can see what happens. You know that Nicodemus is brought up three times in the book of John? In the beginning, in the middle, and at the end. And we have these we have the story. We get to see the arc of Nicodemus. So in chapter 7, uh, we see chapter 7, 50 through 52, and I'll get to the reading there in a second, that um, as Jesus keeps preaching and teaching and moving through the area, people are getting angrier and angrier and angrier. And then a lot of the townspeople are like, we don't know. It, is he a prophet? Is he the Messiah? Is he the Christ? We don't know. So where would they go to find out? The religious leaders of that day, the guys who study God's word. They go to the Pharisees. They're like, who is this guy? Is he the Messiah? The response from the Pharisees was very simple. You're all deceived. <laughs> it's like, you're all wrong. That ain't the guy. And then they start, it kind of like builds up and it starts getting a little bit more aggressive. Like, hey, we got to get this guy. We got to just, we got to give uh, a, a verdict on this guy and have him killed and get rid of him. And then we get this interaction where this guy that we know about, that we just said about, says this, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man with, without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So you're like, well, that's kind of a weak, a weak defense of Jesus. Like, shouldn't he be like, yeah, I love Jesus? If he did, you got to understand the, the context, the culture, and the pressure and what could happen to him. You also have to understand that he didn't have the Holy Spirit at that point. So as we read in the, in the book of Acts, that as the Holy Spirit comes upon him, the, there's two words that define Christians, courage and boldness. Those are the two words that we see over and over again. They didn't have that yet. But we also see that, and here's what I think is really happening, that Nicodemus was like, let's bring him in and let him talk about what's going on. What do you think he wants to happen? I had this conversation with Jesus and he opened my eyes. He showed me who he really is. And I think he's thinking, if I can just get Jesus in this room with these guys to explain what he explained to me, that they will understand and we can worship the Messiah and the Christ. I think that that's where Nicodemus is going. But it doesn't go that way. It ramps up and it gets worse and it gets more hostile towards Jesus. And he keeps preaching. He keeps calling out the Pharisees. And they keep looking for opportunities to, to kill him. And that's just what happens. That Jesus is betrayed and arrested, taken to the temple, to the courtyard of the priest, to a certain place that we talked about early on, the chamber of hewn stone where they would have a false trial with false witnesses at an illegal time to have trials. And they would make up a bunch of things about him to have him killed, to be taken before Pilate. And ultimately, the Roman would then give the death sentence to Jesus. And that's where they nailed him to a pole. And they lifted him up, just like they said they would. And there he became a substitution for our sins, so we would not have to absorb the wrath of God, but that he did, and he died for us. It, it, and he's saying, if you look at me, you'll be saved. But you know what we do? Like The Israelites could have been like, I'm not looking at that dumb snake. I'm going to look for a different cure. I'm going to look for like an herb or a plant or some, you know, some doctor to say, I'm not looking. 
That's exactly what Nicodemus could have done with his knowledge and his religious acts. No, I'm going to look to that to say, I'm not going to look at you. I'm not going to look at Jesus. I'm going to keep doing the thing that I think is going to save me, that's going to bring me peace, that's going to bring me healing, that's going to have me be connected to God. I'm going to keep doing that thing. No, I'm not going to look. No, not going to do it. And then we die. But then we get this really cool story in uh, chapter 19, verses 38 through 40. I want to read this. This is after Jesus had been crucified. He had died. And we, this is where we pick up. After these things, his crucifixion, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission And he came and took away his body. I love this. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths cloths with the spices as the burial custom of the Jews. So if you hate someone and you despise them and you don't worship them, Are you going to go to all that trouble to honor them when they die and bring 75 pounds of costly spices and then spend hours wrapping the body of the person that you despise? Is is that what you're going to do? No, because he was just like Joseph of Arimathea. He was a disciple of Jesus, that his life was transformed, and he understood what happened. And we have a lot of folklore of what happened to Nicodemus afterwards, but we can't really prove it. And so I didn't want to go down this rabbit trail of what might have happened, but we do see that he loved Jesus. He cared for Jesus. He cared for them when he died. This man's life was changed because he went to Jesus and asked him some questions who he was, and where he came from. Jesus is calling you today to ask the same question of who he is and what he did for you. He's calling for you to look to him and to believe and have your sins forgiven. He's calling you to lay down, just like he asked Nicodemus, to lay down his knowledge and all of his good works and just humbly realize that the Spirit can only be born from the Spirit by looking towards Jesus and believing in Him for your salvation. And it might be today, and I don't know where you are, and I know I say that a lot, but I really don't. I don't know where you are in life. I can't know your minds. I can't know what you're struggling. I can't know what you're going through. But Jesus might be saying, if you've never come to a place where you've looked to the bronze serpent and said, I need Jesus, today's the day. That you can look towards Jesus and you can have your sins forgiven. You can plug your lamp back into the power source that it was always meant to be connected to. Eternal, everlasting life in the kingdom with God. Or it might be that you're in a place where you do know Jesus. But you're continually running after things thinking that that's going to bring you hope and pleasure and peace with God. Something other than Christ. And I would say today is a day where you can lay that down. You can surrender those things and you can move away from it. I'm going to pray. We're going to take communion in a second. And then I want us to just kind of take some time to think and meditate on those things. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this opportunity to come before you. I thank you that you are a God that saves, a God that loves, and a God that cares. I thank you for that you did love the world so much that you gave your only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. 
that you did not come to condemn the world, but you came to save the world. Thank you so much for that. Hopefully this brings light to the context of the power of what you said to a religious man in that day, in that age, and what that would mean for him to turn to you and to lay down all of his things. I ask that you would help us do that more effectively, Lord. I ask that you would help us to be willing to humbly submit to you in those areas. We're so grateful for you. As we move into a time of communion, that you would open our eyes to who you are and what you did. I pray this in your name. Amen.